Welcome to Embers and Wind. Are you feeling a calling to serve? What if answering this calling unleashes from deep within you leadership potential? I'm your podcast host, Keith Weedman. Blended three decades experience with knowledge from multiple disciplines to unleash hidden potential in others. In this weekly podcast, my distinguished guests and I will share what fuels us and how we serve. You will feel a gentle wind on the embers of service that glow within you. You will receive kindling for your capabilities and knowledge to build skills. You can utilize this gentle wind to ignite the kindling. You will be guided to do this for people you lead and serve. You can apply what you learn with people you love. Get ready to feel the gentle wind. Today's guest is a speaker, educator, executive coach, author, recovering lawyer, and ex-felon. He asserts he is qualified to speak on a variety of topics, leadership, corporate social responsibility, high-performance team building, coaching, and mentoring. He chooses to concentrate on only one, the importance of resilience in the workplace for organizations, team leaders, and team members. He believes there is not a more important topic for an organization's leaders to understand and practice than the ability to overcome setbacks and move forward. The title of this episode is The Importance of Resilience in the Workplace. Please join me in welcoming Paul Glover to Embers and Win. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much, Keith. It's a privilege to be with you and to uh, be able to speak to your audience. What would be helpful for us to know about your personal story? <laughs> well, obviously, if I want to talk about resilience, I use myself as an example of someone who engaged in self-sabotage. It ended up costing me my law career uh, and put me in prison for five and a half years. So when I speak about resilience, uh, I speak about how I came out of that situation and with the support of my family uh, and uh, my friends, was able to not only uh, recover, but uh, to, to to use that a term that I really like is anti-fragility. Not only did I recover, but I bounced forward. I believe that resilience is all about the opportunity, obviously, to face uh, adversity, overcome adversity, but then embrace the adversity. I think too often, once we face adversity, we try to forget it, get rid of it, move it away from us. Uh, and I believe that, uh, that we face so much adversity that the opportunity to learn from it, to make it a part of our experience, is essential. Otherwise, we waste. We waste the time and energy of resources that we expended facing that adversity and hopefully overcoming. So uh, I took my prison experience and I uh, combined it with my legal training as a trial lawyer. And I decided that I had a skill set that would make me unique as an executive coach. And I can speak obviously through experience about uh, the adversity that I faced. And I believe that a lot of leaders face, obviously they don't go to prison, but they're constantly facing adversity. They have to be resilient. How do they overcome? Uh, and leaders, unfortunately, often believe they have to do this on their own. You know, when we say it's lonely at the top, that's because leaders believe that they need to be infallible. Uh, I know we have a lot of discussion today about vulnerability and authenticity. Uh, leaders struggle with that, and they believe that it's their job to, uh, to put on a happy face every day. 
And when, they're, uh, when they are facing adversity, they don't share that. I think that, that executive coaches uh, give leaders the opportunity to share that experience uh, in a very psychologically safe environment, obviously with someone that does not work with them or for them rather, but with them. Uh, so again, uh, the concept of being a trial lawyer was about communication and persuasion. Uh, the concept of prison and resilience came out of my experience going to prison. And uh, I found that uh, I'm pretty good at being an executive coach. Thank you for sharing that. Paul, I would love for you to share more about your own blind spot with us. One of my keynote presentations talks about that. My, I, had, I have three, by the way, I have more than three, but I can tell you that I had three that put me in prison. And the first was my need to belong. And because I was a trial attorney, I was a, uh, an adrenaline junkie. Trial attorneys are adrenaline junkies. You're constantly on a high when you're in trial. Uh, the, the problem I had was between trials, as you're doing the preparation, very boring. And I sought out that adrenaline high. Well, because of my clientele, I started associating with, uh, with criminals. And I can I tell everyone that we consume things. And if we surround ourselves with bad things, we consume bad things. Bad people that we if we surround ourselves with bad people, I guarantee you they're going to infect you and your behavior. So my first blind spot was I needed to belong. And I found a group that I was attracted to because of that adrenaline junkie personality. Uh, and the second thing was I, I wanted approval. So even though I was a very successful trial attorney, the group that I sought approval from was this group of criminals. And the way you get you get approval from criminals is you do criminal acts. Uh, so so the need to belong and then approval and then pride. Uh, I I had hubris. And I'll tell you how bad it was. When I stood in front of the judge who was going to sentence me to prison, he offered me the opportunity to reduce my sentence by 18 months if I would accept responsibility for my criminal activities. Now, remember, at this point, I'd already been found guilty. So I was going to go to prison. This was an opportunity to reduce my sentence by a year and a half, and I refused. That's hubris. That's stupid. But that's the impact that our blind spots have on us. And we need someone that we can rely upon to tell us the truth about ourselves and our behavior so that we can get better and avoid that self-destructive behavior that is caused by these blind spots. By the way, we don't see them, other people do. And other people will take advantage of your blind spots for their self-gain. And so it's extremely important for a leader to have that person. I believe that that's a function that a coach provides that psychological safety, and also the opportunity to tell you the truth about your blind spots so that you do know what they are and you can take action to avoid the bad behavior and the bad decisions. So why is resilience so important in the workplace? Well, uh, first, I think the last two years has, uh, has emphasized why. Uh, when, when, we're, when the black swan event uh, occurs, the pandemic, our ability to face that adversity uh, and overcome is based on our ability to be resilient. And I find it so interesting that coping skills, which I think are essential to resilience, are in short supply. When I hear about how much mental illness there, uh, there is and how many people are suffering, uh, and in fact, they've come up with a term uh, for that for millennials uh, and uh, uh, Gen Zs, 
and that is languishing. It, unfortunately, that trips a trigger with me. It makes me think about Victorian England and uh, women who swooned, right? Languishing <laughs> is something I don't quite understand, except I believe it's because there hasn't been a development of coping skills to deal with adversity. And I think that we have to do that. We have to toughen ourselves by facing adversity instead of running away from it. And that allows us to develop those coping skills necessary so we can overcome adversity, recover. And, and everybody faces uh, adversity. I read an interesting book about transitions and how many transitions we face in our life. And every transition requires resilience to get through. Transitions are that, are that unstable aspect of moving from where we are to somewhere else. And we can't avoid them if we're going to move. And the concept of improvement requires that we step outside our comfort zone and move to another place where we are better, where we're, where we're able, capable of doing more. Now, we don't have to move outside the comfort zone. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, if you think you can avoid adversity by not doing that, no. Adversity will come and find you. I think the pandemic came and found us and we were not prepared for it. We're not prepared to cope with this. And by the way, I understand it's overwhelming. I'm not saying that you should not be doing the self-care necessary, but you also have to be willing to face it and overcome it. So how did your experience as a federal trial court attorney prepare you? I can see you're quite good at oratory. <laughs> Two things. First, uh, I believe that most uh, most leaders uh, are terrible communicators. That's because they believe in telepathy. They think that if they think it, uh, everybody else hears it. No. So of, often, one of the th first things that, that I work with with a leader in my program is developing an appropriate communication process uh, that allows them to understand how they have to present what they want their organization to accomplish in a way that shows those people that they're going to rely upon to do this, uh, what the purpose is. I, I tell you, you know, I, I like Simon Sinek. For the first thing we, we want to know today is why. If you want me to do something, I hear you tell me that you want me to do it, but I need to know why. And it doesn't have to necessarily benefit me, but I need to know why we're going to do this. Purpose to me is extraordinarily important. Most leaders are difficult, have find difficulty in clearly expressing the purpose. So we work with that. And as a, as a trial lawyer, I had a jury in front of me that I had to convince through my communication process uh, that my client should prevail. And that's a persuasion convincing skill set that I think is essential for every leader to learn. And then, like I said, the, the other issue is uh, I never found a client told me the truth. Really? <laughs> they, they want, well, no, a client comes to you, they want you to like them because you're going to be representing them. And their part in this dispute, because we all have responsibility for disputes, uh, and our behavior is seldom do we have clean hands. Uh, and somehow we've either instigated this or through our response, continue to make it worse. So the clients don't tell you the truth. They tell you their version of the truth. The whole concept of the trial is through the discovery process, you find out the other half. The other side has a truth also. So you, you now, between the discovery and the trial, you now know the truth. So your client comes to you, uh, you have you have to be slightly cynical 
Because, and by the way, uh, once you've taken a client on, it doesn't matter at that point. I know that this, nobody ever wants to hear this. It doesn't matter if they're, if they're guilty or innocent. Once you've decided to represent them, it is your obligation as an attorney, your ethical obligation and required by the, uh, the ethic canons to actually represent this person to the best of your ability. I know that people get upset when attorneys represent bad people. That's their job. That, that is what's required when they take the case. And so those two things, again, uh, are a part of the skill set that I bring as a coach. I'm going to help you be a better communicator, but I'm also going to help you to not only understand your blind spots, but I'm going to help you find and, and be able to recognize other people's blind spots. Let's talk about how your time in prison actually was helpful to you. Now, think about that. I've already said what I was like when I went to prison. Uh, I, I, I was, I had pride. Uh, and by the way, I wanted revenge. I wanted revenge from everyone that I felt had wronged me. And it probably, it took me my first two years. I struggled with accepting responsibility for having put myself in prison because that's truly the deal. And we often don't want to accept that responsibility for doing the things that cause us to suffer. And yet it was no, no one else's fault. I associated with bad people. I did bad things. I deserved to go to prison. I didn't want to go to prison. I fought going to prison. But the reality was that I went. And, and within that two-year frame, uh, I was, <laughs> even though this is a hard way to, to get reflection, self-reflection, prison gave me ample opportunity for self-reflection. Uh, and, and based off of that self-reflection, I started to realize how I needed people to tell me the truth about me. And, and I also needed to learn to listen. Uh, I tell people just because uh, just because I respect your opinion doesn't mean I don't find you annoying. <laughs> so I wanted I needed not only to have people who felt safe telling me what I needed to do to be better, but I also needed to learn to listen to that, take that information and then make a decision because having information you do nothing with is a waste. Take the information and make decisions about how you're going to use that information to improve yourself. And through that improvement process, improve your relationship with others. And so that's what I spent my time doing, uh, self-reflection and then putting together action plans that I followed personally that, that made me better. And uh, it, that, that required a few things. First, uh, you know, I was, I was ungrateful. Uh, because I did not appreciate what I had. I was a successful trial attorney. I had a loving wife, two loving sons. I lived the good life, uh, Keith, and I can tell you I did not appreciate it. Well, let me tell you, if you, you want an experience that will cause you to appreciate your life, go to prison where, where you have no control over anything, where well, you respond to other people's control because you have no choice. And believe me, being a lawyer and going to prison is a is even a more of an unpleasant experience because the prison system believes that lawyers are a pain in the butt to begin with. And they believe that you as a lawyer who's a prisoner is even going to be more difficult. So they make sure that you know right away that you are not running anything. And if you cause any issues, you will pay a price for that. And so I figured right away that was a change, right? I was used to being in charge. Uh, and I accept the fact that I was not going to be in charge of anything. Even my own behavior was going to be within the structure of a prison system. But I also realized suddenly how much I had to be grateful for. 
Uh, first, my, my family didn't leave me. Uh, five and a half years incarceration usually means you have no one left when you get out. Your family moved on, rightfully so. My wife and I had that discussion when I went to prison that if any time during my incarceration, she felt she needed to cut me loose, she should do so. And she chose not to. And by the way, when people make those sacrifices, because again, I, I tell people it was more difficult on my family than it was on me. And I went to prison. I left my family financially destitute. I spent all of our savings, my son's college education funds, uh, took out a second mortgage on the house, all trying, all paying for two trials to try to stay out of prison when I was guilty. And plus the emotional devastation of finding out that I was a crook. I mean, the impact on my family was just devastating. And at some point I had to accept responsibility for that. So, so I did. And, and being able to understand how grateful I needed to be for my life, what was an insight that I didn't have. And so those are the type of things that prison actually did for me. I, I'm very honest about the fact that if I hadn't gone to prison, I'd be dead. The people I was hanging out with and the things that I was doing, I guarantee you, I would have been dead a long time ago. Prison saved my life, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I, I, people need to, leaders and, other, and people need to understand there's a better way to do this and get the same results. For me, because of hubris, because of that pride, it took this. God shook me, uh, shook me awake. Uh, and, and without that, I guarantee you, I would not have woke up on my own. I would have continued along this path of self-destructive behavior until I killed myself or been killed. So no, it saved my life. And now that you're awake and alive, you probably have some mentors and role models you look up to. You know, actually, I, a couple, right? I, one is, uh, and excuse me for not revealing names, okay? Before I can do that, I need to have somebody's permission. You'd be surprised about how many, when I first got out, I was a pariah, right? People would not acknowledge having known me or being associated. So when I do, when, my, when I look at the people who are the mentors now, uh, there are other coaches that I rely on to tell me the truth. I believe every coach needs a coach, by the way. Sure. I, have, I have two people that I rely upon as my personal coaches, and they make sure that I continue to recognize my blind spots uh, and continue to improve. When I look around at, at the people that I admire most, uh, I have to admit that most of them uh, I've come in contact with through the coaching program. I see family businesses as my primary client base. And when I see families work out their difficulties, because the most dysfunctional business you can have is a family business. And, and when I see a leader step into that role and be able to make that work, I admire them. And I look at, I look at their skill set and say, that's a skill set that needs to be passed along. So you wrote a book called Workquake. Yes. So tell us about your book and what would be helpful for us to know about your book. Okay. Well, first, I wrote the book 10 years ago. And when I finished writing the book, I told my editor, I said, I hate this book. I said, I, I was compelled to write it uh, because writing is a task for me. I'm not necessarily bad at it, but I don't like it. Uh, and so I struggled, but I got it done. And uh, the editor did a really good job. And I got the final product. I said, uh, I hate this book. And he said, well, why? I, I said, because nobody is ready to read this book. The things that I talk about that we've been talking about did not apply. Uh, for instance, half of the book is dedicated to self-care. 
because I believe that if leaders do not take care of themselves appropriately, they cannot take care of others. And so I, I talk a lot about in the book, I, I write a lot about self-care. Well, 10 years ago, that was not a topic anyone wanted to talk about. Queen was I'm not sure the word existed, right? And so, so I, I said, nobody's going to read this. And the other part of the book was about changing the nature of the workplace to make employees partners and stakeholders. I, I wrote about stakeholder capitalism and how you, you can't treat nature of work and the nature of employees has changed, right? But, but the mindset, it continues to be assembly line industrial age. Only because of the pandemic has that mindset started to shift uh, because leaders did not see the need for it. So I looked at that and I said, that, that's just not a book anybody's going to read. Now I am extremely proud of the book because it actually fits in to the situation that we're the environment, the work environment as it exists now. Uh, yeah, let, let's accept the fact that employees are not cogs in a wheel, that they are actually human beings that have human needs that need to be addressed by their employer. The concept of of taking care of employees anymore. Think about this. The deal was you come to work at eight o'clock in the morning, you punch in, you sign in, you work till five, you go home, and that's the end of the relationship. That's not the way it is anymore. You need to be engaging the employee if you want them to stay. And by the way, the, the magic elixir is engagement, isn't it? We want engagement. You don't get engagement unless you engage the employee on a personal level, which means you engage them with their family and their community. And that's a, that, that is something that is only now starting to make sense to employers uh, because guess what? The great resignation is a report card. If you've got 50% of your employees who've decided they want to work someplace else, don't you think instead of being mad at them for leaving, you ask, why are you leaving? Why? Right. And once they tell you, by the way, they will tell you if you want to listen. And then you need to make some decisions about how are you going to treat the employees that remain? And the reality is we're only getting there. And so anyway, my book, my book and I are much happier together now. I can see how that would be five or 10 years ahead of time. It was. Now it fits very well. So and at yep. least there's one person who the pandemic did something positive for. Talk about how you prepare yourself to become an executive coach. Well, uh, the skill sets, I think, is uh, when I got out of prison, I could no longer practice law. And, and I said, OK, what are you going to what do you want to do? And I decided that 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 I wanted to create a legacy. And yet I'm not a software guy. I can't, I'm not an inventor. Uh, I, I'm a person that I believe because of my experiences in self-reflection and education uh, have a skill set. But that skill set is not going to make me necessarily a leader. I'm not a good team leader. Uh, the last thing you want me to do is be in charge of a team. I will either run them off or work them to death. But I figured that out. I've been socially distancing for 30 years. And I'm happy with that. So, so I looked at that and I said, I, I want to leave, leave a legacy. And I don't want my legacy to be, this is the guy that went to prison because that's what it can be, right? Here it is. Uh, you know, and, and I could have, I could have crawled into a shell and disappeared because uh, if, and by the way, I tell people there's this thing called Google that if anybody wants 
know about you, they're going to find out. So hiding, hiding your, your issues does not work. So how am I going to do this? How am I going to create a legacy that would matter? And I decided that I couldn't do it personally because it just didn't fit, but I could do it through other people. I said, how am I going to do this through other people? I'm going to help people get better. And the way I'm going to do this is through the coaching process. So, so I decided I'm building a legacy through those people that I coach who improve and help others improve. Because isn't that what we're after as a leader? As we get better, we want our, our people to get better. If that's not what you're getting better for, then, then you need to quit. So, so that's how I decided to do it. I, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my skill set. I'm going to take my experiences. And by the way, again, I'm an acquired taste. I recognize that most people are not going to want to have me as their coach. Uh, I'm a little bit too hard. And I said, I'm going to do three things here. I'm going to do the, uh, the recovering attorney, which we've, we've already uh, covered about no BS and communication. But I'm also going to be the fool. And the fool in medieval times was the gesture that sat at the foot of the uh, king's throne. But he thinks he was an entertainer. Well, he wasn't. Because the king had been uh, anointed by God as the infallible ruler, anyone who challenged the king committed heresy, which meant they could have their head cut off. However, if you were insane, if you were crazy, no one, you weren't held accountable. So the gesture or the fool was looked at as being crazy. Therefore, he had the psychological safety to tell the king the truth. So I said, so I'm going to be a fool. When I approach a leader, I'm going to be the one that has the psychological safety to tell you the truth. Right? And I said, what else would I like to do? I want to be a Sherpa. At first, they love it. They're good at it. I said, you know something? If you want to work with someone, they need to have goals that are like climbing a mountain. They have to be committed to it. They want, they're, they're in it for the struggle. It's a struggle to climb a mountain. I mean, even now with those stupid lines up Mount Everest, it's still a struggle. And I said, I'm going to be the Sherpa. I'm not going to carry you up the mountain, but I'm going to be with you to guide you up the mountain, to carry some supplies for you, to help you succeed. So I said, so that's my deal. <laughs> and when I, when I talk to people, I tell them exactly what I'm telling you. This is what you get if you engage me as your coach. No BS. We're going to do being psychological safe with each other. We're going to share. I'm going to be authentic and vulnerable. And so are you. And then I'm going to help you achieve your goals. And if I can do that, then I've generated a legacy with that person. So that's how it came about. Thank you for sharing that. So tell us about the walking dead. <laughs> well, I believe that first, Gallup has been doing engagement polls now since 20, uh, what, 2020. So for 20 years, and consistently, the people who are, or the employee groups are divided into three groups. The first are the core employees, the committed employees. That's approximately 20%. Uh, then we have the, the group in the middle that I call the sometimes engaged, and that's 60%. The bottom 17 to 20% are actively disengaged. And this, this is Gallup's deal, and I agree with it just because of my experience. And of course, these are the working dead who show up, collect their paycheck. But, but And by the way, that could be the undecided, but they are toxic, and they continue to pollute the work environment around them and infect other people with their toxicity. Uh, and I have never found it difficult for managers 
to discover who the working dead are. They can, they can identify them. If you sit down with them and you go, take your team of 20 and tell me who the, the good employees are, the mediocre employees and the toxic, they'll identify them just like that. The problem is once you know this, are you gonna do anything about it? If you don't, you irritate everybody else because you leave these toxic employees in place. They are identifiable, by the way, they're not stupid, but they are identifiable by their action, not their words, but their actions. And at that point, you need to take action and eliminate them from your from your work team. Uh, we find that very difficult to do. I tell people that uh, human resources is the, uh, the 21st century union. You have to jump through so many hoops to get rid of someone that often managers just quit trying. It doesn't matter. I can't, you make it so hard. I can't devote that much time to that person. Uh, so they do one of two things. First, they try to transfer them to another department. Terrible. Or you know what they do? They, they turn them into trainers. And when you go, well, why? And they say, well, my good employees, I have to have them doing all the work, but training a new employee, I'm going to get, wait a minute, let me make sure I understand this. Oh my God, you know what you get? Another one of the working dead. You have to stand up and say, I'm not going to tolerate toxic behavior on my team. That's extraordinarily difficult to do, but I guarantee you the working dead exist in every organization. And when I tell this to leaders, they go, no, 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 not in our organization. I go, really? Let, let's call in your management team and let's see who they identify. Guarantee you, spot on 20% of the team. So how can those who join the conversation today stay engaged with you, Paul? Well, first, I, pretty simple. I, I have a website, uh, don't we all? And uh, they can contact me at paul at paulglovercoaching.com. And I'm on LinkedIn as uh, Paul Glover Coaching. Uh, and absolutely, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And by the way, as a uh, opportunity for those who are interested, because I bought a lot of books 10 years ago, <laughs> a lot of my own book, anyone who contacts me within 24 hours after uh, the podcast airs, and they show me that they bought the book, I will reimburse them the purchase price. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. And how can people that are engaged in this conversation and want to learn more from you, how can they learn more from you, Paul? I will coach on an individual basis. You can follow me. I belong to the uh, Forbes coaching group. I publish articles on LinkedIn. I publish articles on Forbes. So you can catch some of what I believe and, and some of what I think matters to those people who are in leadership positions. I also do online courses. So if they get in touch with me, I'll be more than happy to direct them to other sources, or, or maybe we'll even uh, establish a coaching relationship. Excellent. And you do have a free introductory coaching session too, correct? Uh, absolutely. I believe every, every coach should have a taster session. After the taster session, 80% of people who you who get in touch with you will go, well, that's not for me. <laughs> and by the way, I'm okay with that. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you have a benevolent call to action you want to make for those who've been engaged in this conversation today? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I would. I, I would. I would tell you that that before you start the day, you need to think about the day. And what I mean by that is back to the concept of gratitude. I start every day, every morning with gratitudes. That gives me a positive state of mind because I think about 
what I have to be grateful for this day, not just in general, but today. Uh, and I tell people, I, I, I'm kind of a numerologist. I pick three every day. And those three are what I focus on in the morning when I get up and start my day. But before I go, take the time to say, here's what I have to be grateful for today. It sets a positive state of mind. And I guarantee you, it will help you battle through the obstacles that you're going to face. Thank you for that, Paul. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Embers and Wind. If you enjoyed today, please come back next week. Please also share this episode with a friend. If you've not already subscribed to Embers and Wind, rated this podcast, and written a review, please do this now. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at embersandwind.net. Thank you again for joining us.